Reenacting is definitely a hobby that's best done with a group of like-minded people. But what do you do if you don't know any locally? Coming up in this edition of The Reenactor's Corner, we meet someone who hasn't let that get in his way. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Well, I believe I'm dying of heat stroke. Okay, well, uh, you know, it could be worse. Uh, it could be worse. There are hotter places in the world. Yes, this yes, week. such as the UK, apparently. Um, but yeah, it's been very hot here. And I guess to cool us down a little bit, we have brought on a special guest all the way from Iceland. Logie, thanks for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me, guys. It's uh, an honor. This is this is going to be fun. I'm excited. I don't actually know if I've like met anybody from Iceland. I, I mean that as a good thing. I've met Scandinavians, Europeans, but I'm not sure I've become acquainted with an Ice- Icelander. Is that the preferred term? Yeah, well, there are not many of us, you know, 380,000 people. And yeah, Iceland- Icelanders. Icelander? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Good to get the terminology right. <laughs> yeah. Logie, how did you get interested in uh, in reenacting and in World War II in general? Well, World War II in general, well, that started quite early. Uh, I lived with my family in Norway uh, when I was five, six years old. My brother is uh, seven years older than me, and we used to play, you know, stick war in the woods. And we would uh, stumble across a uh, rusty 1940s uh, car. And uh, beside the car, we found a gas canister. It was rusty and wow. old, uh, it was all destroyed. But uh, my brother told me, yeah, this is a German uh, gas canister. Uh, That's we kept, crazy. Yeah, we, we kept it. We took it uh, from the wreckage. And uh, yeah, we, I, I still have it somewhere. But, uh, that, that's, that's really cool. That's how it started. Where in Norway did you live? Uh, Hardangensfjorden. It's... Uh, uh, it's it's like in the middle, not too far from Bergen. Okay. Bergen. I've been I th- I've been to Trondheim um, and also Oslo. Yeah. I don't know if we went through or by Bergen, but um, yeah, that's I only know really sort of Trondheim, Oslo, and the territory in between. But lovely country Norway is. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful, uh, and yeah, then the the yeah that that, that what. Uh, Fumed the flame of the interest was my grandfather. He competed in the 1936 Olympics, and he would have all these uh, newspapers, photos, uh, stories to tell, and so that that's where I got the fascination of World War II and uh, especially the German side. Now, was he a Dane or a German, or um, what nationality did he compete for? Iceland. Iceland. Cool. They had it in the. In the early Olympics, the, they would invite nation to exhibit or like to show off their national sport, and so they okay. they competed uh, like a showcase sport for the Icelandic uh, wrestling team. Uh, Logie, where where in Iceland do you live now? I live in the capital area. It's uh, called uh, Garðabær. It's a uh, like a super superb uh, town in the capital area with Reykjavik. I guess there can't be that. 
uh, many people in Iceland who are interested in reenacting World War II, right? No, there are very few of us. Uh, <clears throat> there is a um, there is a lot of interest in World War II, uh, especially because uh, Iceland was occupied by the British in 1940, and later uh, the Americans came in 1941. So it's been a part of the culture for decades. Uh, they they closed the base in 2006. So it's it's been a yeah it's been a quite interest in the World War Two, but reenactment uh, I think we are the only ones who are even thinking or and doing it uh, as of this moment. Well, I think it takes you know a special kind of person to want to be a reenactor. You have to be a certain kind of crazy through the to do the hobby. And uh, I've talked with Chris before about how I was the only person at my high school who you know was as into World War Two as you know as I am. And I was lucky to find the hobby and meet other like-minded people, but I mean, I don't mean this in any kind of negative way, but I believe the population of even just my state, Massachusetts, is greater than, you know, the population of Iceland. And I feel like sometimes, you know, to, to really take on, you need population density, you know? Like, different people have different interests, and, you know, you just... It, there, there needs to be a certain critical mass of people, I feel like, for something to really t take off, you know? So more power to you for getting into reenacting, you know, given your geography and whatnot. Well, Ben, our, our tiny American state here in Massachusetts has almost 7 million people in it. Yeah. That's, and there are, there are twice as many people just in the capital city of Boston as yeah. there are in the entire nation of Iceland. Okay. I didn't even know the statistic. <laughs> so that that uh, to me that really puts it in perspective. Truly, you know, where you've got this this big landmass that I guess must be pretty sparsely populated. Truly, um, Logie, when you were growing up, did you encounter people who had uh, lived <coughs> in Iceland during the British occupation? Did was did you hear stories about that time? Yeah, it it like I said, it was kind of our, uh, in our history. Uh, like for example, there was uh, there was uh, some planes that were either crashed crashed here, German planes planes that crashed here during the war, and one was shot down. Uh, and there was this uh, Junker GU eighty uh, eight, one uh, like uh, operator radio operator survived, and he was the first prisoner of war for the Americans, uh, a pilot. Uh, wow, so, that's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was all over news back then. Iceland was a part of the Kingdom of Denmark uh, in World War II, right? When the Germans invaded uh, Denmark, uh, Iceland kind of cut ties to Denmark and uh, declared neutrality. They didn't want to have any part of the war. Uh, they said, we're just neutral, we'll be Swiss. But uh, the... British said that that island is too important for the North, Atl North Atlantic, so they they knew that the Icelandic government was not going to allow them to build a base here. So they took like six, seven hundred guys and just uh, took the island. Was there any resistance or fighting or friction when the British came, or was it just you know? No, I think uh, the the Icelandic uh, people and the government was leaning more towards democracy, and they didn't want. Uh, a dictatorship so they were sure, I think they were more sure. hap happy that the British came rather than the German sure. so yeah makes no, there sense were, makes there sense were, there were a couple of police officers that greeted the 
<laughs> the invasion force and uh, said hello. That's funny. Yeah. That's quite so, funny. Uh, yeah. Well, um, how did you get the idea to start doing World War II reenacting, Logie? I read an article in 2006. Uh, it was about this uh, this guy who was uh, serving in uh, in the German army, in the, in the SS. And I thought it was interesting what kind of a person. And uh, he, uh, there was a, like a, the news reporter took an interview and he said, please don't publish this until after my death. And he did that. Yeah, in the article were the names of these uh, nine uh, Icelanders who served in the, in, uh, in the in different branches. So that's where it started. Like, who are these guys and what made them do it? And, and then later I started thinking, what, what did they go through? And uh, so I think that that was the beginning. Uh, yeah, and then uh, only like 2015, 16, that's when we, uh, I got a couple of guys, maybe we should uh, buy some gear and uh, try to immerse ourselves in the, their way of uh, living, the way they lived during the, during the war. Uh, we were not into the, the gunfights or the, uh, what do you say, the, the battle scene. We were more into, you know, uh, going out in nature, doing hiking, setting up cell ponds and just, uh, you know, using the same gear, eating the same food. So that that appealed to me and I got a couple of guys on board. But uh, yeah, that's how it started. That's cool. It must be, it must have been daunting to know that you, you know, you were doing like an unprecedented thing. Did you find yourself ordering um, most of your kit from America or from Europe? I know I, I don't know what shipping is looking like, and I imagine there's probably no vendors out of Iceland, right? Yeah, no, no vendors. I I, I was uh, lucky. I, I started a YouTube channel just to uh, document the process and also try to raise interest uh, in what uh, I was doing and what we were doing and what I was trying to start. And so I and I got in good contact with uh, some other YouTube uh, reenactors uh, like uh, Marcus and Leander from Norway and, and Frank cool. and these guys. And so and uh, listening also to you guys when you started your uh, podcast is like uh, the do's and don'ts. And uh, yeah, we I had we had to start from scratch. Uh, so we, we ordered our gear and uniform from all over Europe, China. The states. Wow. It must be very expensive between the shipping costs and also the exchange rates. Uh, I've got to imagine. Yeah, especially now after uh, the war started in Ukraine, the yeah the rate is just crazy. We haven't or I haven't bought anything uh, for like you know since the war. Yeah, the dollar and the euro, and the pound is just way too high. Iceland is a kroner over there. Is there yeah. a yeah, kroner. Icelandic kroner? Icelandic cool. Krona, yeah. So you were you were faced with trying to get a reenactment group off the ground in a nation that had never had a, reena- a World War II German reenactment group, in a nation that didn't have any events, right? I mean, that, that's just, uh, I think that's such a challenge, and I think it's really great that you um, rose to the challenge and have done what you've been able to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's crazy how it started. I mean, we, we were getting a roll, and we, we had about five guys who are interested, but then it's basically a two or three of us who are, you know, collecting gear and trying to get some, uh, like, equipment. 
and I was going to go uh, to Ohio Demensk event just by myself, just to get uh, to, for wow. them to sh- show me the ropes. And uh, I got con- I got a contact with Christopher Smith, and yeah. uh, but then COVID and uh, mm. the event was cancelled. I tried next year, mm. but then we were not to fly to uh, the states because of the COVID, so I missed the event. So it was it was a it was a steep hill in the beginning. It it I feel like you know there was there were Europeans coming to American events. You know we had people from Norway and the UK and Switzerland come to the Fortin Indian Town Gap event in Pennsylvania up until it got canceled in 2018. And then I I went to some events in Europe and I w- I went to events in in Spain in Switzerland. Uh, in Norway and in the UK, including the the War and Peace show in 2018, um, and also too, I know um, there was a Norwegian who came to like the last Stalingrad event, and I feel like <clears throat> recent sort of economic and political and you know the COVID situation has kind of prevented a lot of this you know cross ocean reenactor travel. I mean it's it's very expensive and difficult to do, but uh, I feel like recent events have posed challenges to the traveling like that. You know, yeah, especially we. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I was lucky enough last summer. Uh, <clears throat> I prepared paired a kit for Project Advice, uh, and so I went. Uh, I uh, applied for that and got the invitation, and it was great experience and then also we realized uh, i mean our initial impression uh, viking impression was not politically correct uh, even mm. though these icelanders were some of them weren't viking and other and uh, in those branches uh, we had to tone it down a little bit so we are now aiming towards uh, the gebrix jager uh, sure. so yeah it's, uh, that's that's i think it's going to be because we're all 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 us into hiking, and we can kind of do some mountain climbing and hiking in our big backyard here in the Icelandic Highlands. That's cool. I mean, I feel like I, I've met some Gebirgsjäger reenactors who like live in flat areas. You know, it's I feel <laughs> yeah. like it's you need kind of you need mountains to be able to reenact Gebirgsjäger. You know, in 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 a in like a like a proper field setting and uh so that's that's cool that you're 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 going for that how did you like project edelweiss you said it was a good time do you, do you get a comment on the experience beyond that yeah that was amazing i mean it's that i think the also the reason i got into this hobby even though late later in life i'm middle-aged guy but to get that full immersion in 3,000 meters, uh, it snowed on us, it was frost at night, sleeping in s- under cell ponds, uh, eating, you know, period-correct food, and and uh, it was based on just Gebrigtsjager uh, training. So it was not a battle scene, it was just uh, the way they would train. So it was, yeah, it was a great experience, being on, on that location, being in the Alps, uh, wearing the uniform and being with like-minded guys. And I just, yeah, shout out to Bruno for a great event. Yeah. Truly wonderful. Yeah, I've seen the photos from that event. It's It looks stunning. And also Switzerland is, Switzerland, right? Yeah, what's in, yeah, Switzerland. Such a beautiful country. Such yeah. a beautiful country. Logie, you mentioned your YouTube channel. Um, for our listeners, um, what what is your YouTube channel? How can they find you on YouTube? It's, uh, it's World War Two. Jaeger, 
Iceland. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that uh, people can check out your stuff. Um, we chatted a little bit before we hit record, and uh, I, I was saying that I, I enjoy your YouTube channel a lot. I like your uh, Zeltbahn reviews. Uh, I'm always looking on YouTube for videos about the Zeltbahn, and uh, yours is one that I've, I've watched, or your multiple videos on them, I guess, <laughs> I've watched uh, more than once. Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, I think it's really cool, the, uh, the reviews, the comparisons, and... Um, I, I, I really like that kind of content, and I think that YouTube is a good format for that because it's, I think, a lot easier sort of to show the differences or the similarities between one thing and another um, and like a video where you can talk about it and show the different aspects of it uh, rather than like a, a Facebook post where you just can show some photographs and have to describe everything. Yeah, that's also, yeah, that's one of the reasons I started it is just to document what I was doing, uh, mainly for my pleasure purpose and then to share it with uh, with other reenactors, both who are been doing this for a while and also to create an interest here at home. Uh, and I also, the, the YouTube channel has uh, given, I get a lot of great feedbacks. Uh, if I'm mispronouncing something or talking about uh, something I'm not quite uh, familiar with. I get good feedbacks. I rarely, rarely seldom get some negative feedback. It's, uh, it's not even to talk about. That's really excellent. I'm actually surprised to hear that because, um, you know, for, at some point I'd like to make some videos. I plan to do some. Ben and I are going to do some reenactors corner uh, YouTube stuff at some point. But um, you mentioned uh, Marcus as someone else from YouTube earlier, and I've I've talked to him about it, and I know he gets uh, you know he gets a lot of positive feedback, but he also does get negative feedback. And um, I mean, look, anybody who's putting themselves out there on the internet um, is going to attract some detractors i think no matter how uh pleasant they are no matter how uh careful they are not to offend but um i don't know it just seems like i would just i guess maybe it's it's just me but i have some kind of concern that uh there would be more negativity on youtube so it's it's cool to say that you haven't uh you haven't experienced that very much well i there there are when the negative feedback come usually it's nonsense i mean it's not related maybe to the material that I'm talking about, or it's not related to the hobby. It's just uh, a slander. So I don't even answer that. I just delete it mm. and, and, and keep going because it's not worthwhile. So. I think that's the best attitude to take. I know there are some people out there who think that no one should ever delete negative comments. Um, you know, I think that's absolutely silly. Like if I post something online, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, and people are, uh, you know, throwing mud in the comments or just leaving zero value negative stuff, I, I always delete that stuff. I find that that kind of attitude can kind of derail what can otherwise be a good and productive conversation. Yeah, so sometimes, sure. I, yeah, sometimes I leave them up there just to leave them in silence. So. You know, I think that sometimes work too, just to show their uh, silliness. I know you also have some videos uh, that are like a how-to, showing the the kind of crafts uh, projects that you have, the things that you make. Yeah, if I if I cannot find it anywhere online, I I have to make it 
like uh, X cover or 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 uh, Isex cover or like, uh, and I just wanted to try to make the bayonet uh, cover as well. So yeah, if I don't find it, I'll try to make it if I can. That's a cool mentality. If you can't find something, I mean, to make it yourself, I I, I respect that self sufficiency. And unfortunately, I feel like my skill levels personally aren't developed really to the point where I can fabricate my own things. But maybe that's for lack of trying to. But there is something really respectable about, you know, if well, I'm gonna make it myself. Well, there yeah, is I a think... <laughs> yeah, there's a learning curve. You know, even if it's something that you could buy, to have something that you made yourself, to me, that's, you know, if you can make it to a high level of quality, uh, that's, it's better than buying it. And sure. um, there's soul in it that you put into it when you make it rather than uh, it's coming off of maybe an assembly line yeah. in uh, in China. You know, the, the German soldier didn't have to make his own gear, but of course, they didn't have to buy it either, right? Sure. It's a different situation. Sure. And I'm sure there were things that they may have fabricated in like a field setting, you know, I, not, not like issue items, but out of necessity, you know. For I think even sometimes some issue items, you know, I've sure. seen photographs that seem to show um, like enlisted, co presumably company tailor type guys in the field making hats. Mm. You know, I think maybe there was more of that stuff than we sometimes realize. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like some sort of, I don't know, this is totally random but uh i've seen some photos from you know winter settings that sh uh, that appear to show either like white material m34 caps and i'm like what the hell is that <laughs> and i it looks like it looks like an m34 cap but in white material and i've never seen a real one but uh i presume it must have been some sort of company company level tailor-made item you know that sure. was yeah, produced yeah. for winter conditions yeah, that's also a, that's like the part of my immersion is like I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. If you're missing something, you might have to make it yourself. I mean, either you're when you're back home on leave or when during your sure. uh, your mission, you need to fix something, you need to make something work, and then uh, that's kind of part of the experience to do it yourself. You know? Sure. Sure, improvising. Did you have leatherworking skills before you started uh, putting together a reenactment impression? No, uh, I've always been. I'm I'm a graphic designer by by trade, so I, I you know I'm used to using my hands for craft and drawing and painting and stuff like that. So yeah, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. So yeah, not but not. I have self-taught in leather making, but. Uh, no experience in that before that. I think that's super impressive. I um, I don't have like a, a ton of skill with leather working, but I did learn how to do repairs on leather items just watching tutorials on YouTube. And that's an ability that has proven so valuable to me um, in the last few years. I mean, I remember years ago, if, for example, um, you know, I, I had an issue where I, I blew out a D-ring on a pair of Y-straps. I had to have someone else fix it for me. I paid them to do it. They did a good job. But, um, you know, I didn't have those Y-straps for a while while they were being worked on. And um, now I realize that I could have I could have relatively easily fixed that myself with a few cents worth of thread and, and some needles from the craft store. Um, and in some ways, I'm kind of thankful to reenacting because it's given me an opportunity to learn some of these skills that, 
that really are useful in other parts of my life as well. I mean, I use other kinds of uh, leather items in my in my daily life and stuff. And just to be able to fix and maintain that stuff is a big help for me. Sure, it's definitely an excuse. I mean, the reality is I I don't regard myself as being super, super, super crafty, but I had no idea how to even hand sew before I started reenacting. And now at least I have some proficiency at at hand sewing, and I didn't know how to sew a button on before I started reenacting, and I've that's a skill I've picked up. And uh, I just, I feel like little things, but um, <clears throat> it does sort of enhance and enhance your sort of skill level in life. And I've definitely sort of used my ability to sew that I've picked up for non-reenacting uses, and it's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I did that. Uh, I brought, I bought a uh, reproduction rucksack for Project Otherwise. And when I got it, it uh, all the straps was like this fake leather. I don't know what you call it, pleather or whatever you call it. So I had to switch out all the straps, uh, uh, that fake leather with real leather. So that leather uh, experience I got through the hobby came in handy. So and I reinforced all the other leather work that was uh, real leather. Uh, so I I think that saved the bag during that trip, uh, reinforcing and changing out everything. So yeah, it it helps. That's awesome. That must have been an incredible amount of work. There's for people who don't know what the Gebirgsjäger <laughs> backpack looks like. There's so many leather bits on there. <laughs> yeah, it, it it took a few hours to do. It, yeah. So how long now have you been doing the uh, the YouTube channel? Uh, I think it's 2016. I took out uh, many of the videos, uh, who I like later look on that okay they might be not politically correct. And uh, since I'm going to more towards uh, Kibirksjager, then uh, main emphasis in it is in that. It, se- it seems to me uh, like you, you've had quite a bit of success on there. Like your videos have a lot of views and they come right up. Um, when I'm searching for stuff about reenacting, I always see your videos in there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, like I didn't expect any following, but like I'm, I think it's now I haven't done any video for a few months now. Uh, so oh, a little bit over 3,000 subscribers, but I'm glad they are staying loyal and not uh, uh, unsubscribing. Living in Iceland, uh, you know, there there are things that you say that I like very much can relate to, like you're describing um, that you have, um, you know, like a small number of, of guys who are really serious about getting the gear and, and maybe doing stuff, and then there are some other guys that... Uh, might be interested, but maybe when the time comes to actually buy the stuff or do the stuff, it's uh, not as much. Um, but like, I can't imagine what the sort of like the political scene is like for World War II reenacting in Iceland. Like here in the United States, as you might be aware, there has been sort of a a stigma about it that about anything related to World War II Germany that has become more noticeable just in the last five years or less. Um, have you had that kind of experience? Is that happening in Iceland as well? Oh, yes, totally. Uh, <clears throat> when I began this, uh, uh, the landscape was quite different. So I wouldn't imagined four or five years later. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's getting worse. I'm, I, I thought that with the new generation, uh, there would be 
thinking, well, this is just a hobby, this is uh, reflecting history, this is uh, not meant to be taken seriously. But then you get the extremes both to your left and your right. So it's I think it's harming uh, Austrian actors or us who are interested in history and uh, acting out history. Sure, sure. I totally relate to that. I mean, honestly, I feel like the socio-political landscape of this country is is basically not what it was in 2017 and the hobby i feel like kind of reflects that um although there have been other things that have happened as well most most of the pandemic too um so many events have gone away i just it's it's crazy the change which is taking place i i think the hobby is still in transition and i feel like those of us who are here for the long haul just kind of have to ride it out and take what comes. Yeah, and also it's it, 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 like the landscape is now, it uh, seems a little bit gone crazy because it doesn't matter how delicate you are with uh, with this uh, subject. It's, as there's always people completely against this or cheering cheering for, you know, in in a wrong way. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a difficult path to tread so yeah 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 it really is what about like uh, laws that maybe are different in in iceland than in the united states or other places where people are listening to this what about the uh the gun laws are you guys able to obtain uh firearms for reenacting with uh well it's it's quite difficult uh you have to have a uh, collector's permit to buy these uh world war ii guns uh, I mean, you can buy a rifle from any period because that's just a rifle. But if you're buying uh, uh, machine guns or pistols or something like that, then you have to have mm. a collector's permit, and uh, you're not to allow. You're not allowed to buy a replica. Uh, it's it's easier for me to buy a 308 caliber rifle than it is to buy a replica of that same weapon. So all replicas are illegal in Iceland. Wow, that's really crazy. That's that's yeah. that's wild to me. Yeah. And even even it's uh, uh, I was uh, fumbling with some uh, Viking reenactment a few years ago, and I was trying to uh, try to buy a sword, Viking sword. But that's also illegal. You're not allowed to uh, uh, own a sword, uh, either as being samurai sword or Viking sword or like a wow. a, a, a medieval sword. But you you can go to the uh, hardware store and buy a big axe and a uh, fishing knife that is bigger than a sword. But <laughs> well, so, that's an yeah. interesting interesting legal loophole. But yeah. you can't. What about uh, so no Denix rifles? Obviously, what about airsoft? No, it's uh, no airsoft. Airsoft uh, it, it goes under the same umbrella as replica. It's not a real weapon. Wow. It's, a, it's a replica of of a real weapon used in a different purpose. And I, I assume like a deactivated real gun, you know, would fall under the same category, or yeah. Well, if you if you buy a deactivated gun, uh, then it will be uh, categorized as a real weapon, but be being deactivated. So okay, if I would buy. Uh, deactivated MP40 on my collector's permit, uh, it will still be uh, registered as a real weapon. Is the collector's permit difficult to get? Yeah, I mean, you have to have uh, no criminal record. Uh, you have to have a uh, gun uh, cabinet for your weapons and security system. I mean, there's some, not 
they make it a little bit harder so not anyone can uh, get your get his uh, college department yeah now when i was in norway um German candidates were extremely common, but basically all of them had been reworked to NATO caliber 308. Um, is it? Are those very common in Iceland? Um, the Norwegian reworked German candidates. Like, what do you have for candidate? Uh, well, mine is uh, uh, original 1938 model. Uh, it's not Russian captured, and it's uh, all matching uh, serial numbers with, I think I, says, except for the bolt. That's uh, cool. A lot of these uh, uh, K-98s who are coming to Iceland, many of them are these uh, Russian captured ones. Uh, it's really rare to find uh, uh, intact original one. Sure, makes sense, makes sense. I mean, those are, you can find them in the States, but those are still uncommon. Um, They've gotten a lot harder to find, certainly. Yeah, I'm I'm lucky I have yeah, one my yeah. grandfather brought back from the war, but he was a, you know, he was a GI, so, yeah. Um, okay, okay, nice. You guys can't have uh, handguns either, is that right, Logie? No, uh, you have to, you have to have a certain permit for a handgun. Uh, uh, either you have to be in marksmanship, shooting, sport, club to have a handgun and the collector's permit goes as far you can buy a broad weapon that is uh, it cannot be younger than from 1945 or you can buy a gun that has been imported before the laws were changed so i can buy a block block 17 but it's then it's from 2008 or or uh, older yeah here in america it's it's different in every state, and uh, I've lived in a few different states in the northeastern part of the United States uh, in my life, and of course, every state has different gun laws, different hoops you have to jump through, and sometimes the uh, the red tape or the bureaucracy aspect can be so daunting, um, and especially, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it seems so silly to ban uh, a replica firearm. I mean, I guess they... Um, they must have some reason for doing that. There must be some rationale. But I, I actually bought a Denix K98 myself relatively recently, and I've, I've had a, an Airsoft one for a while. And for some, a lot of the things that I do, it's just easier for me to have that as a prop than to have to worry about the legalities of toting a real firearm around. Yeah, we have the, but the, but the strange thing about Icelandic uh, uh, thought towards weapons, I mean... I think Iceland is, is one of the highest weapons per capita. Per capita. I mean, uh, most homes have shotguns and rifles. This, there's a tradition of uh, this hunting uh, community, uh, bird hunting, deer hunting, seal hunting, and weapons is nothing, uh, some, some, like I say, some taboo. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of guys who have more than one, more than two uh, rifles or shotguns. But when it comes to automatic uh, rifles, handguns, or some weapons of war, that seems to be more of a taboo. Uh, mm, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why it is. But it's just uh, it has uh, it's part of history. But it seems people are more reluctant towards these kind of weapons. You mentioned reenactment. That's not necessarily about battle, but is just focused on sort of living how they lived day to day using the same gear. That's something that uh, Ben and I have been talking about quite a lot lately. We used to do 
years ago, a lot of events. And now in the area where we live, there is, uh, well, since COVID, uh, some events have been canceled, other events uh, have new restrictions. And so there's fewer events for us to go to. And so yeah. we've been talking about doing some some general outdoor hiking, camping stuff. In fact, we did some stuff just this past weekend where we uh, took some pictures that I was really pleased with how they came out, but they were um, just taken in sort of like uh, wild areas, a swamp, a forest near where I live. Um, and I got to think that in Iceland, you guys must have some really incredible scenic places to do that. Is it is it possible for you to go hiking and camping with World War II gear? Uh, yeah, uh, we we have, like I say, we have a very big backyard, uh, the Icelandic Highlands, and uh, I try not to be in like in the public areas, uh, but we go, yeah, a little bit up in the Highlands. We bring our gear, we bring our cell phone, we sleep under the cell phone, and so yeah, it's it's possible, and and that that is more that's what I, we're doing more and more, uh, just to get get it out of our system. That's cool. Uh, and even if uh, if I don't have any member of the team to come with, and I, I bless bless my fiance's heart, she she tags along, and uh, so uh, I think she one time she slept with me under a cell phone, and I don't think she's doing that again. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she was a the sport, lack of a floor uh, gets some people, you know. Yeah, yeah, People yeah. People like the modern tent floor. I think it yeah. sounds very romantic, Logie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was it was in the beginning, but then, uh, you know, uh, too much and too cold. <laughs> Fair enough. I love um, sort of World War II camping stuff. Um, we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast in recent months. I think you can learn a lot doing that, um, using the gear in the way that it was intended to be used. You can kind of live life the way that the soldiers lived. Sometimes even if it's just just you, or I, I prefer to do it with at least one other person because it's more fun and I think also more safe to do it that way. But um, yeah. I think it's, it, it, you know, it's worth noting that you can have a lot of experiences, historical themed experiences that are as informative and sometimes as fun as what you can get out of a real reenactment event, even if there's not a real reenactment to actually go to. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's totally true. I mean, like you said, I, I totally agree with you of getting the feel of it, of being in uh, in that gear from that time period. Uh, one time I went with my friend, uh, he's not in, he's not in, into reenactment, but he's a hiker like me. Uh, I was wearing my outfit my period outfit and he was wearing modern equipment and and uh, during the night it snowed on us uh, i was under my cell phone he was under his uh, tarp uh, and we talked about it the day after he he felt more cold in his uh, uh, nylon clothes than i was in my wool so it was it was interesting to get that perspective. They certainly keep you warm. I'll give him that. I, uh, I, I love, I love wools. I love wool as a material. Do you still go out hiking? You know, now that you've been doing this uh, reenactment stuff for a few years, do you still go out hiking um, with like modern gear? Yeah, I do. I do both. I mean, and now uh, I just do more vintage hiking. I don't wear any insignia, or, or it's just uh, my wool and. Uh, bring my uh, my jewel stove and stuff like that 
also modern hiking. That's neat. I've been meaning to do more sort of vintage hiking, and I, I've, I'm trying to buy some things that I believe I can use for that in like the fall. So that's that's wonderful. That sounds that sounds really cool. Yeah, over the years we've done kind of a lot of it. You know, yeah. Sometimes not. A lot of times not like completely vintage. Like maybe. Um, you know, it's a mixture of uh, maybe modern boots, modern trousers, but you're wearing the wool jacket without insignia or an, an M43 cap and, um, you know, have a, a rucksack like what would have been used in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and even that, I think, even if you go out there not fully in uniform, you know, a mixture of, of modern stuff and and uh, period equipment, you can still get a feel and get some insight of what it is to use the period stuff that you are using. Yeah, we we experimental archaeology is what I guess we've been calling some of it. You know, yeah, it's uh, I, I think it's difficult to explain to people who are not into this uh, to be in this uh, vintage items, uh, the vintage clothing, vintage equipment. It's I don't want to say romantic, but it's it's uh, has a nice feel to it. Uh, well, you guys know know it, and it, but it's difficult to explain it to people who are not doing this. It's funny. When I was a child, I grew up being sort of reading books that were written basically during what you know Chris and I have talked about was the golden age of American camping, and these were like adventure books in which the uh, the you know, the, the characters were going out and they were camping in tents made out of canvas and they were wearing wool and all their equipment was like leather and, and web material. And uh, that left an impression on me. And when I grew up and I saw that all camping gear was this like lightweight, like nylon and neon color, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that's not yeah. very cool. I want to, I want, uh, I, the older stuff looks cool and I know some people are probably like why would you want to go camping wearing like heavy archaic equipment um, and there is a romance to it um, which is undeniable in my mind I think there is a, a feel to it you know I think it has a, it creates an atmosphere and I saw an interview not that long ago with someone who was an advocate for camping using uh, vintage equipment, and he would also always wear a vintage outfit. And people would say, okay, I can kind of see the desire to use the vintage equipment to see what camping was like in those days. Um, so I guess it makes sense to use vintage gear, but why do you also wear the outfit? And his answer was, clothing is gear. You know, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's part of it. And... So that's that's kind of my attitude as well, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's a little bit heavy, heavier, but it's uh, more fun to bring along. Sure. Also, I just think, I feel like it develops wear in a very sort of unique way, you know, the way that canvas fades and, you know, leather darkens with oil and uh, it's... And wool, like, it becomes, like, less fuzzy and the weave exposes itself, you know? Like, I, I love it. I, I, yeah. I love it. Now, Logie, one more question. Um, so, basically, granted this sort of, my perspective is slightly dated because this was before COVID and I don't know what the scene is over there now, but um, when I did reenactments in Spain in 2016 and 2017, um, the hobby, I was under the impression, had been in existence in that country for, I don't know, around 20 years, give or take, two decades, you know? And so it was... The biggest event maybe had like 300 people at it, and uh, I 
did some events in Norway, and uh, I was under the impression that the hobby had been around for 10 years or a little less. And, you know, there were probably less than 100 World War II reenactors in Norway at the time, but they were pretty tight-knit. Like, how would you say, how, how many people, have, have you had more people in the past before COVID? Um, how would you say reenacting in Iceland is developing, and do you see it developing into any anything further? Or are you just trying to hold hold the line with the people that you have and keep it going? Yeah, for right now, yeah, I think it's just on uh, on hold. I would say, sadly yeah. to say, yeah, we no, have, no, uh, I, I yeah, get it. Yeah. We started at the time two main factors that kind of halted the main uh, uh, progress was uh, COVID and then later the political landscape. So I think it's going to be even more difficult. We may we may have, like you said earlier, we, we may have to wait it out a little bit. So in the meanwhile, we just do our thing. And uh, yeah, I think we're not going to be able to bring uh, more people on as, uh, yeah, as the, at that's this moment. I understand. I feel like both those things are also limitations here in America. Yeah, it's surprising how relatable the, the even the words that you're using, Logie, are because yeah. it so, so closely parallels my own experience here. Yeah, so maybe maybe in the near future, we if we get more people, and uh, or maybe I'm not I'm not optimistic on more people than than just the the guys who are in it get uh, you know we get all our equipment or uniform uh, uh, better, and then uh, when COVID goes down a little bit and uh, uh, political landscape goes down a little bit, if it if that happens, then we can uh, go to events abroad. Uh, we we will never be able to hold the event here. Uh, in Iceland, uh, maybe something similar to Project Advice, but I don't think that will happen in the near future. But so look, it, yeah. it's Chris and I have talked about this in previous episodes where you can have the most perfect piece of land um, to host an event. Um, but that said, there's so many other factors. Um, you know, dealing with the logistics of getting people there. Um, exactly. Like yeah. th there, I, I know there are you know places of wilderness that are in you know relatively close, proximate driving distance to us, but uh, it's just getting there and promoting it and getting other people there. You know, and then when crossing borders and you know dealing with flights is a factor. Um, it just it becomes very very challenging and so you know sometimes it's easier to go to events that already exist um but then you have to do the traveling and so it's yeah it's uh it's difficult yeah. either way you look at it yeah definitely i see my friends in uh, norway uh, it's easier for them i mean they have reenactment in norway sweden denmark and finland so they can they are on the continent uh, in Scandinavia, it's it's really difficult for us to join them uh, regarding yeah. travel. Travel logistics is uh, is a pain. But yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I understand what you're saying. Uh, Logie, what kind of advice could you give to other people who may be listening to the podcast? Maybe they also live in a place with a low population density and they don't know any other reenactors and there's no reenactment events near them. How could someone in that situation uh, interact with, with World War II reenacting or get started in the way that you have? Well, well, like, 
like Hawaii began is uh, I did a lot of research before and then the YouTube channel helped me a lot. But I think it's uh, uh, even if it's just a couple of guys to begin with, then you can throw ideas among each other uh, and also just uh, focus on what you want to do. I mean, focus on your impression and focus on your period that you will be reenacting. So yeah, just stay focused and bring together like-minded people. I, I think don't worry about the quali- uh, quantity of people, but quality of people that you're going to surround yourself with. I think that's good. I also think being on the same page about, especially if you have limited people, um, I feel like you're disadvantaged if you have a very strong interest in doing one impression, but then somebody else, they want to do a totally different impression. I feel like being on the same page with people and just saying, okay, we are all going to do this thing, you know, like, I feel like that sort of creates, I feel like that's more conducive to creating a project um, versus just being individuals who want to portray, you know, totally different things. Yeah, and also be ready to adapt. I mean, yeah, uh, our Viking impression was not... Uh, going along with the uh, political landscape, so we had to tone mm. it down a little bit. So, okay, we need to steer another way. We want to do this, but uh, how are we going to do it? Okay, this is uh, less confrontational, less uh, taboo, if, if I can use that. So, yeah, be, be yeah. ready to to uh, yeah make uh, changes. I think that's reasonable. I think that's really good advice. The you know I think flexibility is key, especially in light of the other factors that we're talking about. You know the pandemic situation, changing landscapes. Um, I think reenactors have to be able to adapt and and find ways to engage in their hobby, even if it's not you know the the, the number one thing that you would have chosen. Yeah, you know, if it's still what you can do. There are things in history that I find to be aesthetically very cool or. Um, historically very very interesting but nobody portrays them in my area and or nobody portrays them at all or you know they're not possible to really portray and so I feel like I I, I wouldn't encourage people to settle but um, just because the number one thing that you have an interest in uh, isn't reenacted doesn't mean you still doesn't mean you shouldn't reenact I think yeah I agree with that Totally. And honestly, if you like parts, the kit, maybe you can buy them for your own collection, or you can even maybe use them for camping, you know? So, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you had planned to go to an event in the United States back in 2020, but COVID changed those plans. Um, You know, I know it's hard even to imagine it now, but... um, do you think maybe you might come to an event in the United States at some future time? Well, the current project I'm working on now is uh, we're expecting uh, my first baby. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. So we will have to see. Uh, I really want to uh, to go to events uh, to the States. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've seen good things about it. Uh, and I, I, you know, I know a couple of guys uh, in the states. Uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would love to in the in the future. But right now, uh, Project Baby is uh, in uh, top of the list. 
Yeah, absolutely. Project Baby is very important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. If you ever plan some kind of World War II hiking event in Iceland, uh, I would I would love to go. Let me same, know. That would same. be super fun. Uh, well, I'll, I'll set something up and I'll let you know first. That would be great. What yeah. what what is the landscape like where you guys go hiking and camping? It's volcanoes and stuff, right? Uh, it, it's really yeah, it's really barren. I mean, uh, we don't have a lot of woods uh, or forest areas. It's a lot of moss and uh, like it's it's like a landscape on on Mars. I mean, it's really are there tri- are there are there I went I've been to um, Svalbard um, up in you know high Arctic Circle. I think it's actually the latitude of or longitude is uh, it's it's higher up than than Iceland, but I imagine it's probably yeah. a bit similar, yeah. But they, it's, that, it's yeah, they don't I'm have sorry, trees up there. It's so far north. Uh, are there any trees at all in Iceland? Uh, I'm sure Iceland there's a tree is, somewhere in Iceland. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Loki, uh, let, let's hear it. Are there trees in Iceland? Yeah. Or yeah, we have our trees, but they are really like uh, Nordic trees, like Arctic trees. That's cool. Uh, we we have a joke here in uh, Iceland. If you get lost in the woods, just stand up. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, really funny. But, That's really. It funny. sounds it's, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's. Uh, I'm I'm glad that this is my backyard. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing landscape and amazing to go vintage hiking or reenactment hiking uh, here in the backyard in Iceland. It's just that it's great. Wonderful. That I would love really to wonderful. see some uh, some YouTube stuff about that. Yeah, I had one. Uh, I had one posted. I, I took it out, but uh, next time we do some vintage hiking, I'll, I'll post it. Cool. Good. Awesome. Uh, is there any advice that you can give to other people who are maybe thinking about doing YouTube stuff? I know you've you've had success with it. Um, you know, is there any any tips that you can give us about that? Uh, I think what I found was, I mean, don't be worried about uh, doing what you think people would like. Just do what you like, and the people who like it will they will watch and uh, be consistent. I mean, post consistently, then people know that you're doing it once a week, every two weeks, even every month. Uh, be consistent and do what you like. Don't worry about uh, what you think people like. Sure. Cool. Thanks for sharing that with Thank us. Thank you, Logie. You're welcome. Well, we are just about out of time. Logie, it has been really great chatting with you. Um, and thank you again for coming on the program. Oh, thank you. It was, uh, it was a pleasure and an honor. And uh, again, I'll, I'll make sure that we put a link in the uh, show notes to where people can check you out on YouTube and uh, can contact you there, I guess, if they're interested in uh, hearing more about what your projects are. Okay. Thank you. A lot of former military members kind of are drawn to reenacting. Some of those adrenaline rushes kind of kind of come back. There's no perfect unit out there where everything is just nirvana. And, you know, there's going to be butting heads. There's going to be different ideas. There's going to be instances where it's almost like middle school or high school drama. Not only are events being cancelled, but Soviet reenactors, often reenactors who have supported the same shows, for years and years are, are essentially now being said that they're, you know, being told that they're persona non grata. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. 
Just a quick note, as always, I wanted to say a very sincere thank you to all of the people that support us via Patreon. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this podcast, and we really appreciate your support tremendously. I also wanted to say a special thank you to our new Patreon supporters, Austin, Nathan, and Quist Fürzig. Thank you very much. We're glad to have you guys on board. All right, so... uh on that note, on behalf of uh, myself and to Ben and Logie and everybody else, I will see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you think about supporting us via Patreon, no matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll join us here again at the Reenactors Corner. Corner.